Welcome to another episode of Shark Stories, and I'm once again here with my co-host, Dr. Sarah Andriotti. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi, I'm well, thank you. Good. Great to have you here again. This story, you know, this made headlines. It was also it was in the 90s, so it was a reasonable amount of time ago. But once again, why I'm bringing the story onto our podcast is because it's unusual. The other points I'd just like to make while I'm explaining the story is it's actually quite difficult to find stories about shark incidents at the level of Black December 1957 or even Matawan Creek that we said in our first episode because there are not stories like that. So these are very unique events that happen and it's not something that happens all the time. It's very infrequent. So looking for exciting or dramatic incidents is quite hard to find realistically. Indeed, there are only six to eight shark-related fatalities happening globally. So it's really not many, which makes it also difficult from the scientific point of view to look for patterns mm. because the sample size is not there. They are very different from each other. They happen all over the world. Um, often we don't, we're not 100% sure which species was, the, yes. um, was involved. So, yeah, it's, it's tricky, but it's interesting to try and unpack based on what we get. Yes. Right. The other thing is, is that you'd get a, a, a particular beach where you would have no attacks or, no, let me say, no shark incidents for over 100 years. Yes. And no documentation of anything to that nature. And then suddenly, in the next five years, you get eight attacks. And then after that, it stops again. So... You're dealing with dynamics, you're dealing with the way the ocean changes, the way maybe where it's a better place. Often the rivers, so the KwaZulu-Natal is an example, had these beautiful rivers that flowed out to sea. Yes. And, and our bull sharks, as they call them, Zambezi sharks, used to go up and have their babies. Yes. But a lot of these rivers have silted up. So that changes. They have to go somewhere else. So there's, there's a lot of things in, uh, that change. But the point being, these horrific attacks are very, very few and far yes. between. So that brings me to, to our story today. Um, Andrew Carter and Bruce Corby, both brilliant surfers. Andrew Carter is, was probably one of our, our great young surfers uh, at the time. He was a junior champion and he'd also won a lot of championships with surfing in Europe. And he was surfing in his hometown of East London. And at the time... He was 200 meters uh, offshore, which is something that they normally do. But when you have an encounter with a shark, well, suddenly it's very far. But um, he said it was an incredibly beautiful day. And he was surfing with his friend. Life couldn't get better. And he remembers suddenly that he felt a huge bang on the, on the back of his board. And he felt pressure on his leg. And he said he, instinctively, he straight away knew that this was a shark. And... At the time, he's explaining the story. He says he's never in his life experienced the sheer terror that he experienced in the first three seconds of this actually happening. And, and the power. And, you know, you look at, we, we watch the movies about superheroes. But we look at our own animals on earth. They've got superpowers. You look at the strength of a, of a lion's arm. Oh, you, look, yes. you look at the, the, the power of a, of a shark's jaw. And not just the Joes, when we were doing um, cage diving in Hounsby, when we still have enough white sharks around, which is no longer the case, unfortunately, um, we, the top of the cage didn't have, wasn't closed. And the people would stand up um, without having their head 
uh, out of the cage, but it was on the, at the surface. And when the shark comes close, we would tell them to go down into the cage, mm. not just because they can then take the picture, but because we see how powerful the tail of the shark is if mm. they turn on their X, they put down their pectoral fin, they manage to turn on their X, and if they turn very fast, the tail can slap on top of the cage. That will knock you out. Okay. Uh, because they're all muscle. Mm. They have these two kinds of muscle, the red one, the white one, the thermoregulate. They're incredibly well adapted for their environment. Yeah. And, and super powerful. And super powerful. Yeah. Obviously, he was on the wrong end of the power, Andrew yes. Carter. So the shark had clamped around his leg and obviously on his surfboard. And these pictures, you can, you can Google the pictures on Andrew Carter. The size of the bite. Big he, shark. It, it was Small a big board. shark. Okay. It was a big shock. So he said, you know, when he was in the in the incident, that the jaws alone looked to be four to five feet long. Um, and he actually looked in his face and he could see his eye was closed. <laughs> you know, so. Oh, yes, it, they can actually roll the eye back. They don't have a nitty membrane like other species. They roll the eye 180 degrees uh, back so mm -hmm. they can protect them when they bite. So we'd, at this point, we don't know it's a great white. <laughs> but I'm just saying, because it's one of the questions I want to ask. I'm Later, species. because I'm, I mean, everything that you see, you don't need a detective probably to find out what the species is. But often, I think the the big three, the tigers and the and the bulls and the great whites, you don't know who's who's doing what. True, but surfing accident happened often when you know. Okay, with the great white, perfect. Okay, so he thought he was going to die at the time. Um, he was 200 meters from shore, and he felt totally helpless. Now you know, suddenly now you're so far away. And there was another surfer next to him and, he, and he'd heard me scream. And what he said afterwards, this guy that was next to him on his board, he said he thought the shark was going to bite him in half. So he got the hell out of there, which Andrew at the time said, I would have done the same. Fair enough. Yeah. So he, he just went as fast as mm -hmm. he, he possibly could. And he thought he was being actually eaten alive. Then for some reason, the shark let go. So he'd let go and he slipped back in the water. And at that time, it just gave Andrew a chance. And he thought, no, he's going to swim now. He's going to swim for the beach. Uh, the shark came back up and grabbed him again. But he was holding so tight onto the surfboard. The surfboard was twisting around in his arms. It was so difficult for him to swim. And the surfboard was just lying there. So he went back, grabbed the surfboard. And he was lucky in that there was a wave there. And the wave um, propelled him to the beach very, very quickly. And he got back on the beach and he was losing an enormous amount of blood. He was seriously bitten and he wanted to pass out. But there was a lady that helped him and really held him and keep the warmth and, and put a tourniquet on to try and stop the bleeding on this massive wound. But then Bruce, who was a very, very close friend of his, Bruce, who had been surfing, was further out and he had to come through Andrew Carter's blood as he was paddling back. None of the witnesses realized he was the shark's second victim at the time. And somebody on the beach saw Bruce coming in in a wave. And Carter says he saw, saw Bruce shouting to everybody at the time, um, I've been attacked too. Everybody get out the water. But Bruce seemed very, very normal at the time. And then when he actually got, you know, into the shallow water and he stood up, he suddenly realized he only had one leg. So Bruce's other leg was totally bitten off. And he went into hysteria. And um, shock. He went into massive shock when he mm -hmm. saw that. They tried to revive him, but he was brain dead. And sadly, he died uh, 48 hours later. 
Um, Carter, on the other hand, had a five-hour operation involving around 2,000 stitches, and then every muscle and tendon had to be painstakingly sewed back together. So they would say, the doctor saying there was only two inches of flesh left that was holding his leg onto his upper body. Oh, that's gross. So, yeah, so changed him. He was saying the whole th- uh, that he used to get crossed with people standing in queues or sitting in traffic jams. Mm. This is nothing like that worries him anymore. <laughs> I believe he started a surf school uh, in Iceland or somewhere. Okay. Um, he, just, he just doesn't want to be in, in waters where, <laughs> where there's possibility of shark attacks. But he did go back and surf at Nahoon. This particular place is Nahoon Reef, which is very, very famous for surfers love to go. There's a great mm-hmm. break, especially with the southwesterly wind that comes through there. So that was the shark attack. Effectively, the, there were two surfers amongst other surfers on the back line and there was a great white in the area and he had a go at, at Andrew. If, if, if I look at, it, he didn't really have a big go at Andrew and then he just bit mm-hmm. Bruce as well, effectively. So that's the facts. It's a very typical kind of accident, especially the first one, somebody on a surfboard moving, moving, And these animals are predators, so everything that moves away from predators tends to be a trigger. So predators want to go and stop them. You see them with cats. You throw a ball and they will go and chase it, even if they realize it's not a mouse. And and sharks have the same instinct. If you move away from them, they will try and and stop you. Uh, What we don't know about this story is what was the condition was it early morning? Was it late afternoon? Were mm. there dolphins in the area? Or maybe shoal of tuna? Was the shark hunting on his already? And then he saw the slowest um, d- decoy on the surface mm. and decided to go and, and, and check it out. Um, if the visibility is bad, that is where you can have uh, things like that happening. Um because it is it is the movement that triggers. And as you said, it bite him and then it released because we are not fat enough. Mm. These animals need a lot of proper fatty mm. food to, to maintain their metabolism. So when they bite into a sea lion, they can see, they can feel the nice layer of fat and they have this sense of touch behind their teeth. So that is the only way for them to figure out what is what. And a bite through human is not fatty enough. He would release. So he, can, he can, they can determine from a bite um, the what, calori- what caloric is. deficit or, or yeah. something that's not really going to suit them. Yes, and they're very. They're, they're, I think we, we spoke about this before. A white shark in particular are very. Uh, peculiar about their diet. They also seasonally change them. Uh, when they're smaller, they eat more. Uh, they eat other fishes and other sharks. They only start going into a marine mammal diet when they're adults. Mm. And this way, this this small one and the big one don't compete for the same food resources. So, in a, in an event like that, um, this guy, the, both of them, were very unlucky that these sharks. Uh, after the first bite didn't go away because they often do. Mm. Uh, and he saw us, the situation and he went uh, and he tried to bite the other one as well. Now we are, we are speaking about this event because it can be uh, very traumatic. But we cannot speak about all the millions of times that a shark is around surfers 
and nothing happened. Yes, we can see that nowadays more and more with drone footage. With drone, yes. There is one guy in California that is taking really, really good um, drone footage of the sharks there around the surfers. And there was um, 12 years old, I think, at the time in Plattenberg Bay with a drone that also took footage of the white shark mm. around the surface and that went viral a few years ago. Yes. So um, this can happen, but to dig out this story, you had to work hard, I believe. Yeah, no, 100%. I think, like I said in the beginning of our, of our podcast, it's you want to look at something that's unusual, where it just help us to to bring out more the behavior of the sharks and to understand that we're not on the menu. Mm -hmm. But you really do have to dig. It's, honest truth is there are a lot of shark attacks that have happened. Yes. But, um, but there, there, there's there's always a reason behind it. There could be a lot of fish in the water. Um, yes. And, and, and hunting is a big part of it. He did really have a nice go at Andrew's surfboard. If you look at the picture, um, mm -hmm. you'll see the bite is yeah. insane. It's a really, really big shark. But um, what I wanted to ask you was he let go and then he came back for a second bite. So he'd clamped him, the first bite he'd clamped, then he slipped back in the water and the second bite he came back again. He wasn't sure about it. So he wasn't sure about it. So I suppose <laughs> uh, it's very difficult to know yeah. what, he was, what it was in also, his mind. These, these sharks are all different. They have all different personality. You mm. have the one that comes around the boat give a look and then run away because he doesn't like the situation. And you have the other one that is really into it. And to keep them around cage diving boat or for the research as well, we need to play with them with the head of a tuna and a rope to let them stick around because mm. the chum on his own is not enough, yeah. despite what the movie says. If they come around and they smell like something is dead in the water, but they see no visual reference on the surface, nothing to chew, they're just very bored and they mm. leave. We had an experiment on the Sharks Have Barrier work one of the first years, just looking at how magnet works for white sharks. And we had this buoy with a brick and a fish attached to it and a buoy with a magnet and a fish attached to it. And we would just record how the sharks behave. And because there was no movement, nothing that was moving that would trigger this uh, behavior from them, they would stick around for maybe 10 minutes and then got very bored and leave. Uh, so the movement plays mm. a big role. I think as well what I'm learning more and more is the diet of white sharks is, yes, they do go for marine mammals, but they predominantly are fish. Yes, fish and, and other sharks. And fish and other sharks. Yes. And the behavior and the personalities just fascinates me no end. And that's why it just brings me to our final two episodes of this uh, season where we're lucky enough and I'm very excited to have Mark Ratson join us in our next episode. Um, Mark Ratson is a shark conservationist. He's worked in the sea for for, for most of his out, life. Shall we give out his age? <laughs> you don't understand. You think I know about shark. He's my mm. mentor. Yeah. Every so. time I was behind the computer and book to try and figure out the biology, he was in the water with the animals. That's why I'm so very excited yeah. because, you know, the purpose of, of the podcast is to tell stories that could be gruesome and horrifying, but also to show actually what's really going on yes. at the time and to unpack it a little bit more. It's always, you know, very sad when, when people die. Uh, it's but, very traumatic, and we must acknowledge that. You yeah, know, we, we love do, sharks, yeah. but it is a traumatic event. Yeah. It is about put it in context and see how we can unpack it and prevent that in the future. Exactly, and I think that as a shark behaviorist, Mark's got to be the best on the planet. So we really look forward to that Indeed. next time. Indeed. 
Thank you for listening to the Shark Stories. Shark Stories is proudly sponsored by the Shark Safe Barrier, the first uh, shark-specific and eco-friendly solution to the shark-human conflict.